Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Football season is officially in full swing. All of your odds, bets, props, and parlays are available with betonline.ag. Use our promo code BLEAV50, that's B-L-E-A-V-5-0, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good afternoon or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is Friday, September 16th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is you may be listening. We are joined today by one Razor Rosenthal Coming back here on the Take It Easy podcast, he's going to talk NFL from the last week. He, We're going to talk a lot of Falcons and Rams for some reason, but it's really good gambling insight. If you're trying to learn how to do gambling stuff, Razor's a gambling expert, kind of gives you the lowdown of what, uh, it, it's a perfect game to analyze some trends in lines and finding value within the gambling world. So we're going to talk a lot of Falcons Rams, but not talk about either team. And we're going to talk about college football. We're going to talk about the games from last weekend, the games coming up this weekend, Razors trends from the first week of the season, his Buffalo Bills. We're going to talk about all kinds of great stuff with Razor Rosenthal coming up on the back end of this podcast here for our A Block today. We had a big old Thursday night football game, and I saw that Steelers and Browns is next week, so this will be the last post-game show that we do on a Friday. We've done like four post-game shows for the last three weeks. Trust me, this will be the last post-game show for a little bit because there won't be a must-watch NFL football game coming up anytime over the next couple weeks. Let's talk Chiefs and Chargers And uh, first off, let's talk about the Kansas City Chiefs and how they put up 20 unanswered points in order to beat the Chargers at the very end of that game, which means we get to hit the Mahomes music. The Kansas City Chiefs won again, proving all of you who thought the Chargers were the trendy pick. Incorrect, baby. Do not doubt the Kansas City Chiefs. Is it a small sample size? Of course it's a small sample size. Is it indicative of who's going to win the division? It's going to be Kansas City. This one game isn't the reason why. It's just don't doubt the Chiefs. 
as I wear my Mahomes jersey, the only football jersey that I have because I love me some Patrick Mahomes. Nick Wright had a great tweet that came out uh, during the game, which is, uh, I highly recommend having Patrick Mahomes be the quarterback of your favorite team 10 out of 10 experience. I mean, that's not the exact tweet, but basically saying like, yeah, it's pretty nice to have Patrick Mahomes as uh, your favorite quarterback of your favorite team. For me, it's just favorite quarterback and the Chiefs, I guess, for that reason are the team that I emotionally connect to because a generation of football was connected to me through Patrick Mahomes and connected to me through the Kansas City Chiefs. And now we're moving into a new generation of NFL football, shall we say. I feel like uh, the trends of the offseason, both on the field, off the field, new TV contracts, feels like we're headed to a brand new NFL era slash generation, new stars have emerged, all that stuff. And uh, part of that was from the the broadcast of Amazon Prime for the first time, which I do have thoughts on that. Last week when we did the post-game show, it was the whole episode, and I had like three longer form points that I wanted to talk about. Today's just four quick ones. Uh, if we were a typical sports radio show, we would have like a booming voice guy and call the segment something like four downs because we have four talking points reacting to the game that was before. Here's first down. And it would sound something like that. And the first point was just the Amazon broadcast. One, I never realized how great the chemistry between Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreet is because as soon as you took Chris Fowler out of the broadcast booth, Kirk Herbstreet seemed a bit sloppy, less interesting, didn't have chemistry at all with Al Michaels, which will probably be fixed over time. I don't know. I mean, it's not like Kirk Herbstreet's going to be as bad as like Jason Witten because Kirk Herbstreet's really good on college football and stuff, but... I don't think that there's any like real animus about the broadcast or anything that might like make the experience less wonderful or anything like that. It's just Kirk Herbstreet wasn't that great, and that's okay. He'll have time. We'll be listen to him all season, and we'll listen to him for the next two years unless Amazon uses their infinite resources to replace him sometime during uh, the next year because they get, I don't know, like, not Peyton Manning, whoever whoever the big broadcaster would be that could replace Kirk Herbstreet, although everyone turned down the Amazon job last year, so I don't know why that would change anytime in the next few months, I suppose. Also, if you didn't know, this is just, this is like kind of a, a something you might not know. Amazon Prime hired the producer of Sunday Night Football for the last like 12 years to run their broadcast, and so... This broadcast felt like they just kind of copy-pasted Sunday Night Football with the graphics, cutting in and out of commercials, camera angles at certain times. Uh, It just felt like they copy-pasted Sunday Night Football with like a few graphic differences. They basically, I mean, Al Michaels didn't help either in making it think that it was a copy-paste of Sunday Night Football. It it just felt like they copy-pasted Sunday Night Football, and they kind of did. They got the lead broadcaster from Sunday Night Football for my entire lifetime. They got the guy who produced Sunday Night Football for the last 12 years. Just felt like they copy-and-pasted NBC's broadcast over to Amazon, and they paid a lot of money to do it, which is totally fine. It's not reinventing the wheel just means that it's a different you know different advertisement instead of Saturday Night Live or instead of Jimmy Fallon it's advertising Amazon Prime shows instead felt like kind of just copy pasted and changed the advertisers in between even the the scoreboards looked similar all the way down to that detail so yeah that was my thoughts on the broadcast now to the actual game itself and uh, again if we were a typical 
sports radio show, we would have big booming voice guy come in and say, second down. Um, Y'all probably heard me talk shit about the Chargers defense the last couple days, both with Morgan from Australia and the pregame show that we did on Thursday. Yeah, kind of like talking shit about the Chargers defense because the Chargers defense last year was kind of average. And through two games, I have no evidence that suggests that the Chargers defense uh, is anything but very good at this point. Like the Chargers were really great against the Raiders. Derek Carr had a terrible game. And the Chargers were, according to the Amazon broadcast, the first team in the Mahomes era to force Kansas City to punt four times and a half at Arrowhead Stadium. Like, this was a great defensive performance from the Chargers. Up there with, I mean, obviously it's just one stat. Up there with the best defensive performances against the Chiefs that you're going to find over the last four to five years of the Chiefs dynasty dominating the AFC West and dominating football as a whole. And obviously the Chiefs offense kicked ass in the second half and then you got the pick six and all that stuff. The Chargers defense played really well and I didn't realize just how many pieces up and down the defense were new for the Chargers. Because again, new doesn't necessarily mean better in the NFL. Like adding Kyle Van Noy and adding Khalil Mack don't, like, are better than what the Chargers had before. It doesn't necessarily signal to me that that's an immediate dramatic change in what the Chargers defense is going to look like. And with a small sample size that we have, the Chargers defense has looked very good consistently all the way through. And uh, I also talked a little bit of shit about Joey Bosa. Still stand by the fact that like 10 to 15 teams have a non-quarterback as good, if not better than Joey Bosa. And also Joey Bosa played really, really good against the Kansas City Chiefs. And he will probably finish the year with like 16 or 17 sacks and a bunch of tackles for loss because Joey Bosa is really good at football. So I talk shit about the Chargers defense, and they came to back it up. One thing that was interesting to me when they talk about Kansas City having five punts within the first like six or seven possessions of the game, Kansas City punted the ball a bunch because the Chargers ran heavy blitz packages, which is something that teams didn't do versus Kansas City last year. Uh, it was an interesting trend where when you blitz, teams last year figured out the code that like, Patrick Mahomes will throw interceptions because he forces it to the middle and deep balls over or down the field. Just put two high safeties back there and force him to adjust. And they came into this year and against Arizona, it was a track meet. Mahomes completed 15 straight passes, 14 of which didn't travel beyond 15 yards. That was the game plan Kansas City implemented, worked it incredibly well. And the Chargers went the flip side, which was we're going to blitz Mahomes The problem is we're going to have guys one-on-one. And when you're guarding Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, one-on-one is a terrible, terrible, terrible idea because if Patrick Mahomes gets no more than four seconds, it's impossible to... I mean, it's not impossible. It's very, very difficult to guard Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey for longer than four seconds in one-on-one coverage, both with their skill sets and the current rules about defense in the NFL. And so the Chargers ran blitz-heavy packages... And if you don't get to Mahomes, it's that 1v1 situation, which, by the way, the Chiefs hit one of them in the game. The Chiefs had the second touchdown to Justin Watson, one-on-one with J.C. Jackson. He head-faked J.C. Jackson. Jackson cut to the sideline. Watson cut back to the middle of the field. Mahomes threw a super-duper accurate 40-yard pass, and Kansas City got a deep touchdown on third and six. 
and that was a Chargers five-man blitz. It didn't work. Mahomes stepped up in the pocket, and they had a wide-open touchdown. So, like, that's even the risk, is, like, even with Justin Watson, blitzing that doesn't get to Mahomes in two and a half seconds is touchdown for the Kansas City Chiefs. But the Chargers did force two of those five punts, like the Chiefs punted on five of the first six possessions. Chargers did force two punts on blitz packages, which is something that wasn't run last year, and I thought that was really interesting. Sorry for talking shit about the Chargers' defense. It has looked nothing but very good so far this season. Third down, 2-2-2, again, classic sports radio, gas-bagging, doing segments that should be sponsored. Third down, 2-2-2. Kansas City offense, interesting point. Watched the Chiefs pretty close this week. I I tried to watch them close against the Cardinals. The game was just a blowout by the time I got around to it, so I stuck with the red zone for a good bit. Watching the Chiefs offense start to finish today, uh, Mecole Hardman, for the first time I've seen this season, again, I didn't watch the whole Chiefs-Cardinals game, but the first time I saw this season, they started using Mecole Hardman with some of the Tyreek Hill packages where he's running like across the field 15, 20 yards. Um, obviously using those out routes for like eight yards like Terry Kill does. Like, remember the Chad Henney play in the playoff game uh, to convert the fourth down against the Browns? Like running those plays with McCole Hardman instead of Tyree Kill. And remember when McCole Hardman was first drafted, it was because Tyree Kill was suspended for uh, uh, beating his girlfriend and punching his child and breaking his child's arm. And Tyreek Hill, was. it was uncertain whether he would be suspended, whether the Chiefs would cut him if a video was released or some sort of court filing. And they drafted McCole Hardman, and then Hardman became a repetitive skill set with uh, Tyreek Hill. And then now that Hill is gone, this is Hardman's fourth season, he'll be a free agent at the end of the year. I was betting on him to be the one that would become like the second-ish option for Kansas City. Turns out it's Clyde Edwards-Alaire. Um, but for the first time, I did see uh, McCole Hardman used in the Tyree Kill packages. The other thing that I thought was interesting is you remember that first Mahomes touchdown when it was 10 nothing Chargers and they had like punted twice already and they went down the field. That touchdown pass, I counted it on uh, the replay. Patrick Mahomes had 7.0 seconds. So like 7.0 to 7.1, it was like 7.05 something. But according to my count, Patrick Mahomes had seven seconds from snap to throw on that play. And the Chargers defense could not defend Mahomes that well. And if you're counting, the Chargers on that play had Mahomes in the pocket for 2.7 seconds. So 2.7 seconds they got to the quarterback, which if it's not Tom Brady, it's not Aaron Rodgers, it's not Drew Brees, that's a really, really great job by the defense. If you can rush four and get to the quarterback in 2.7 seconds, you've done a great job. And Mahomes' ability to buy basically four and a half more seconds, it's a little less than four and a half, but buying four and a half more seconds after the fact with a short field was just basically impossible to defend. And it ended up being, I believe, McKinnon who scored the touchdown on that play by just sliding out of the backfield and Mahomes doing the sidearm pass. That was a play that was like, if you want to know why the Kansas City Chiefs offense is so unguardable, apart from Andy Reid's play calling and being the greatest offensive coach in the history of football, 
that's the separation of Patrick Mahomes that you see from Russell Wilson and you see from Kyler Murray. And obviously Patrick Mahomes has the same arm talent as those guys. Patrick Mahomes also is Patrick Mahomes, six foot four, 200 something pounds and can scramble with the best of them and just buy time so that they can turn a dead play for every other quarterback, not named. I mean, even Aaron Rodgers. they can every other quarterback, is a dead play Mahomes buys four and a half more seconds which is basically unguardable and great job by Kansas City to convert that into a touchdown of course it was only like seven yards but the fact that he had seven seconds I thought was just like a quintessential Mahomes play if you go back and watch both of those touchdowns both of them were like quintessential Chiefs offense the big play touchdown to Justin Watson and the short one where he bought seven seconds I thought both of those were Super duper interesting plays. Fourth down. Dun, dun, dun. Fireworks, sound effects, explosions. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, fourth down. Uh, this is kind of like a more macro level conversation about the Chiefs because uh, Kansas City won the game on a pick six, which, whew, Chargers fans, you guys were so close. I, I am a five year recovering Chargers fan at this point, and. Uh, it's moments like this that make it easy to remain sober and not fall into the Charger narcotic once again, despite the fact Justin Herbert is really, really good at football. I am a, a five-year recovering Chargers fan, and part of that recovery process has meant uh, the emotional connections and ties to Patrick Mahomes, who beats the Chargers, provides them great pain, and helps alleviate my joy a little bit because, God, it's great to not feel that anymore. God, it's great to not be a Chargers fan. If you if you or someone you know suffers from the uh, addiction to the Lions narcotic, the Falcons narcotic, uh, the Washington narcotic, it, it, to any of these or similar type of narcotics, there is hope. I'm a five-year recovering Chargers fan. There is hope for you on the horizon. And as Nick Wright said, it's much better to have your favorite team have Patrick Mahomes as his quarterback. Would highly recommend it just for your general mental health. Back to the Chiefs. They won the game on a pick six. It was a wacky play where the Chargers were about to go up seven, and then the Chargers were down seven, and it just swung the entire rule of the game. And it's just a fluke play that uh, could have happened to Herbert, a, a miscommunication that just could have worked out. Unfortunately, it didn't, and the Chargers lose on that one play. It, It's the wild wackiness of football. Like, Justin Herbert never throws interceptions, and the one time he throws an interception, it goes back for a touchdown and ends up absolutely screwing over the Chargers who had, I said going in, like I thought a pretty good shot of beating Kansas City, and they didn't end up winning the game, of course, but damn if they weren't impressive in doing it, and the Chargers are clearly one of the four or five best teams in football coming out of that one. Like If Kansas City is the gold standard, which I still believe Kansas City is the gold standard, Chargers are right there, man. Chargers are right there, and they were right there last year. They just happened to fall apart and, and somehow miss the playoffs. Chargers are great. What I wanted to talk about macro level with the Chiefs was that uh, I believe, I forgot the guy, I forgot his first name, but Watson had the interception for the Kansas City Chiefs on the pick six. I know Justin Watson is the receiver, and uh, the corner for the Chiefs, his name is Jalen Watson. So I knew it was another Jay Watson. Jalen Watson had a pick six for the Kansas City Chiefs. And they talked about during the broadcast how Jalen Watson is a seventh round rookie who is activated to the roster because their first round pick, Trent McDuffie, who they got 
in exchange for the Miami Dolphins in the Tyreek Hill trade. Trent McDuffie is out on IR because the Arizona Cardinals have a shitty turf field that ended up costing him a, a, a half of a season in his rookie year. And Jalen Watson is a seventh-round rookie who obviously is not going to be a massive contributor to the Kansas City Chiefs. I could be wrong, but he was you know on the practice squad before this, and he'll obviously play the rest of the year. But having that pick six from a seventh-round rookie... And two years ago, when they had a depleted secondary, bringing in Legereus Sneed as a fifth-round pick, and him uh, not making a Pro Bowl, but he was like all-rookie first team, and now Legereus Sneed is a legitimate, na- I guess now he's their number one corner slash safety at this point, now that they've taken away Charvarius Ward, who went to the, the 49ers. Legereus Sneed from the fourth round is a legitimate number one or number two for Kansas City at this point. You add in Nick Bolton, who was a second rounder for Kansas City. You add in Karloffis, the edge rusher, who was their second first round pick this year. Uh, Pacheco in the backfield, who's a seventh round pick. Kansas City is a really well-run organization, and their front office does really good talent evaluation. And part of where you see that is that this is technically, I mean, last year was the fifth year option, but this is technically the first season that the Chiefs are not getting incredible value on Patrick Mahomes. During all of those championship years for the Chiefs, whether it was 2018 with the MVP for Mahomes, where they should have beat the Patriots in overtime in the AFC Championship, the Super Bowl year of 2019, the 27-1 stretch uh, that ended with the, the Tom Brady Super Bowl in Tampa. Kansas City got incredible, incredible value from Patrick Mahomes. Like, Patrick Mahomes was making the equivalent of a 30-second Super Bowl commercial playing quarterback for the Chiefs. He was only like making $6 million, and that allowed the Chiefs to sign D. Ford, trade for Frank Clark, give Chris Jones a giant extension, give Travis Kelsey an extension, give Tyreek Hill an extension. It allowed Kansas City to prioritize other positions with money because they were getting incredible value at the quarterback position. And you hear people complain all the time about how no quarterback with this amount of money has ever won a Super Bowl. And General managers usually throw up their hands and can't find value within the margins. Russell Wilson had terrible offensive lines for years and years and years because the Seahawks weren't smart enough to find value within the margins. And ultimately, it's the reason why John Schneider and Pete Carroll are not like guaranteed Hall of Famers after the incredible stretch they had in drafting the Legion of Boom in basically three years with late draft picks. Kansas City is doing a great job of finding value within the margins, which is the same thing for years we talked about with Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. It's now flipped over to Kansas City where they're, I mean, if you want to count Watson, who's not a starter, but obviously had the pick six to seal the game. If you count Watson plus the six guys I mentioned, whether it's Legereus Sneed, Nick Bolton, George Karloffis, uh, Trent McDuffie, who's now hurt, Isaiah Pacheco at running back. Kansas City has found so much value within the margins that Kansas City now bolsters a team that is a a defense of almost all rookies, and they're not a great defense by any stretch of the imagination. They're just not the horrendously awful defense that they had in 2018, and they invested in Chris Jones. They invested in Frank Clark. They, uh, I forgot the name of the, the Derek Noddy, I think his name, whoever the defensive tackle is, whose name I'm forgetting now. Like, they've invested in other position groups and they've been able to find value within the margins around what was at the time Mahomes Hill and Kelsey being the big three 
of Hall of Famers who just made that offense rev because Mahomes is the greatest, Andy Reid's the greatest, Travis Kelsey's one of the great tight ends of all time, and Tyreek Hill might go to the Hall of Fame. And now they're finding value that's not at the quarterback position and not at the tight end position. They've pivoted quite nicely. And because they have the starting point, I'm not saying like this is the reason the Chiefs are great. Because they have the starting point of Mahomes, the greatest quarterback in the NFL and the greatest quarterback I've ever watched, and Andy Reid, the greatest offensive play caller in the history of the NFL, because they have that as the baseline. And additionally, they found value within the margins to where a seventh round undrafted rookie gets a pick six and Legereus Sneed's a fifth rounder who turns into a number one corner. They can find value within the margins where now the quarterback is no longer that gigantic margin that they had for the past four years, which I will still attest, despite the fact that they choked to the Bengals last year and threw up all over themselves. The Kansas City Chiefs had the greatest four-year run of any football team since the early 2000s New England Patriots. And they are able to pivot quite nicely because they have found great value within the margins Last year, and I mean, even 2020, 2020, 2021, and 2022, they have found great value within the margins, and that is a great job by whoever is running the team. I think it's still Veach as the general manager. They've done a great job in surrounding that level of talent. Part of that's Andy Reid, of course, too. And uh, I just think that a pick six by a seventh round rookie is exactly how the Kansas City Chiefs remain relevant. Hello? Tyler, you with me? Yes, I've got you. I'm here, man, and I and I apologize. I, I am on the road and not in front of my computer to do Zoom, but I hope uh, hope it all works out and we, we have good service. Yeah, it'll be great, and we just are doing audio only to, yeah. to get everything in order. So uh, how are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm excited to, f- to hear how it was uh, when you traveled up to New York for the U.S. Open. I had a blast. I tell you what, it's a spectacle. It was better than I expected it to be. I saw some great tennis. Uh, the crowds were incredible. Probably the largest crowd that I've seen overall at any sporting event in my life. You have to remember, it's not just one stadium, Kyle. You're talking about several courts where several hundreds of people will go to and then several tens of thousands of people will go to the big three courts, which are Arthur Ashe Stadium, Louis Armstrong Stadium, and the U.S. Open Grandstand Stadium. So I mean, there could have been upwards of 50,000, 60,000 people on the grounds when I was there. Really unique experience. Highly recommended, obviously, if you're a tennis fan. But even if you're a casual tennis fan, it's kind of a must thing. Wasn't it a great story at the end of the tournament, too? Because obviously the Serena Williams story was fantastic and it was followed pretty intently. But you have a 19 year old from Spain coming in and winning the championship in his first his first major title. And obviously today, Roger Federer is retiring from competitive competition, which was something that we kind of knew was going to happen for years. Wasn't that kind of an awesome story to follow during the, on the men's side of the, of the U S open? Well, it was the passing of the torch to Carlos Alcaraz, right? Age 19, uh, you know, ranked number one in the world that at a way too young of an age, in my opinion, which is 
This is extremely remarkable. Alcaraz, uh, while he wasn't a Cinderella story in this U.S. Open, right? He was seated number three, probably the second uh, shortest uh, money line to win the U.S. Open pre-flop. So from a Cinderella story, it wasn't there. We kind of expected this to happen. When it was going to happen was the question. But yeah, I mean, to see someone that can't legally drink in the United States win uh, a Grand Slam at, on the men's side, we've seen it on the ladies' side several times, but it's unbelievable. This kid is the next big thing. I think he's going to, you know, I think he'll have a chance to surpass some of these greats like Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic at some point in his career, 10, 11 years from now. A lot to unfold, a lot to see, but he is the most special player that I've seen in a very long time. He will be the person who kind of carries the torch into the next generation of tennis coming off of, obviously, the three greatest players in the history of tennis all existing at the same time. And, you know, Andy Murray was great in there, too. And, you know, it's it's going to be it's been 15 or I guess my entire memorable lifetime. That's been the same group of people. So this will kind of be like a passing. You you said passing of the torch, but this will kind of be someone who carries tennis into the next uh, generation as like a household name, perhaps. I think he's going to be a household name because mainstream, excuse me, non-mainstream tennis fans, they all know Roger Federer. I would think they all know Nadal and probably Djokovic, but they don't know the likes of Daniel Medvedev and Stefano Sissipas and Sasha Zverev, Kasper Ruud. These are foreign names to non-tennis fans, but they are the elite of the world. But Carlos Alcaraz, like your point, he will be a household name probably by the summer or fall of next year. I think it's going to he's going to kind of creep up to that household name that Roger Federer already has for the last 20 years. What was the most interesting storyline you followed on the women's side of the tournament? Well, you've already mentioned Serena. Obviously, there was a lot of drama in theater for uh, Serena Williams, you know, getting to that point of possible retirement. You know, she mentioned on social media yesterday that she admires what Tom Brady did, where he put out the retirement plan and then came back, you know, 45, 50 days later. So who really knows? See, Serena can hang with these women. She's not fit right now, but if she wanted to get fit for, uh, for you know, 100 days of, of hardcore training, she'd be fine. She'd be top 30 in the world, and you could make an incredible living doing that. Um, the most intriguing storyline to me were the finalists from last year, Kyle. Both women, Layla Fernandez, Emma Radadesh, who both go down in round two. So what it shows you is there's so much parity uh, in the women's game. Uh, a, great, a great story is also Iga Sviatek. I mean, you know, she is... She's the best in the world. She proved it. She played very bad tennis throughout the whole tournament in New York, but yet found a way to win. So Iga Sviatek, not a household name yet, not in that world of Serena Williams, Steffi Graf, Monica Seles, Martina Navratilova, Maria Sharapova, but she is starting to climb that ladder. Two majors this year, went on a streak that was unprecedented from um, May through July, but it's not there yet. It's not there yet, but an intriguing final of uh, two amazing players, chalky final, the number one seed versus the number five seed. So I think it worked out pretty well. I think it was a really intriguing U.S. Open. Anytime that we can get boots on the ground coverage of any sporting event and when we have a tennis expert like Razor, I want to take advantage of that anytime. So again, Razor Rosenthal boots on the ground in Queens, New York where the u.s open which was now a couple weeks ago but last time we talked to you you were on your way over there so i'm glad that uh we got to chat about tennis a little bit because obviously it's your expertise your other expertise is of course nfl football and 
Um, obviously, your Buffalo Bills were the kings of week one, even after you saw 15 games. Obviously, for four days, they were the talk of the town in, in NFL circles for beating up a broken Matthew Stafford and destroying the Rams, despite the fact they had three turnovers. Um, what did you think of the Bills last week? Obviously, your favorite team. And how did you do on the gambling side for week one? Yeah, to start with the Bills, I really was impressed with their defense who, you know, they, they had two guys out on the back end of the defense, right? So their secondary was a little banged up. So they didn't blitz. You know, Buffalo, for those that don't know this stat, Buffalo did not send one blitz to Matt Stafford because I think they were worried about their depleted secondary getting burnt. Uh, they still caused turnovers, which was great. The The Rams really couldn't do anything on offense. Allen Robinson, a complete no-show for those who had him in daily fantasy or season-long fantasy had to be crying uh, throughout the whole night. The running game, they did nothing on the ground, the Rams. So I, I compliment the defense as much as I do the offense. Josh Allen, a little bit out of rhythm uh, first half at times through some ill-advised interceptions, some not his fault. But what you saw the second half was uh, I think the Bills, uh, and a credit to Ken Dorsey, who, and by the way, is the greatest, in my opinion, college quarterback that, that doesn't get talked about enough. Not that he's the greatest college quarterback of all time, but nobody remembers how great Ken Dorsey was at the University of Miami and, and the numbers that he put up for two seasons. But long story short, great plan by Dorsey. Didn't show his hand in the first half. Josh Allen didn't run the ball. They, you know, And they also came up with some really good screenplays in the second half. Thoroughly impressed by the Bills. The Bills have been in this spot many times, traveling to Nashville, Tennessee on Monday Night Football, back-to-back -back years, primetime game, losing both times to Tennessee, the debacles at Kansas City in the playoffs. These are games Buffalo has lost, Kyle, over the last two seasons, and they came in as a two-and-a-half-point favorite and just made this look seamless. So a lot to be happy about if you're a Bills fan. If you're a Rams fan, no overreaction there. This was a preseason game for them. I mean, they didn't play any of their big guys in the preseason. They kind of went into this game. It seemed like, eh, if we win, great. If we don't, we don't. We'll just go ahead and play out the rest of our schedule here. And a pretty easy schedule it is starting this week against Atlanta, who, you know, got lucky to beat New Orleans. That was a very lucky money line play win for me against the Falcons. So um, I, I think the Rams bounce back. This is a this is a defense Falcons that I think is really really bad. And if they start sending blitzing, if they start blitzing Matt Stafford and the Rams pick it up, forget about it. You'll have guys like Cooper Cup wide open. I think Allen Robinson will eventually emerge. Maybe Van Jefferson is back. And I also think Tyler Higby could do some damage. So uh, I think the Rams are fine. They really do have to win, uh, not only win, but maybe win convincingly against Atlanta to probably get that hype back up in L.A. as a Super Bowl champions. But um, that's my takeaway from the Bills-Rams game. And there's not a ton of concern. Well, also, the Falcons ended up losing at the end, but they did end up uh, covering that eight points. They did cover the number. Yeah, and that number that number varied depends on where you shop. I mean, I saw it close down at five and a half, so there was late money surging on Atlanta. I took the Saints as part of a money line parlay, so got way too lucky there. It should not have happened. But um, the, the, the takeaway from, from the Saints and the Falcons is, Jameis Winston is who he is, right? He is such an incredible quarterback that can throw the ball down the field and then three plays later just blows your mind how awful he is. So the Saints have some problems, I think, with him and Alvin Kamara. 
I mean, is he alive? I mean, that was a horrible performance by Alvin Kamara, and he's going to have to step it up because this defense is good. The Saints defense is pretty good, even though they gave up some big plays, which I think is the most intriguing matchup of the weekend, is can Tom Brady ever beat the Saints in the regular season? Short favorite on the road. Yeah, that one will be interesting, especially because it's in New Orleans and it's their home opener and the New Orleans defense. Everything I'm hearing says the New Orleans defense is great. And obviously they've been really good the past few years. And that matchup's going to be fascinating to watch. And the good news for Jameis Winston is at least the, the dumbfounding plays are falling incomplete now instead of going the other direction, which is. Uh, an improvement, not enough to make Jameis Winston a, a bona fide, you know, quarterback you want for the next five years, but it is still at least a, a slight improvement from where Jameis Winston was two or three years ago. And yeah, the Saints are in such a strange place going into that game. The, my question before was: Was there any concern about Matthew Stafford looking, you know, very clearly injured in both the elbow and obviously he dealt with the shoulder injuries in the playoffs last year? Any concern there? <laughs> He could be, but I've always, I always say this in the NFL, these injuries are so well hidden at times. And I, I just don't think that there's a true concern for Matthew Stafford. These guys are going to be fine. Um, and, and I, and I think that, that if Matt Stafford was an absolute disaster out there, uh, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't see him be playing this weekend. So I, I think that cause you know, they're playing a bad team. They probably would say, if this guy's seriously injured, we have to save him. We can rely on our backup quarterback to find a way to beat the Atlanta Falcons. I'm confident in Stafford, and I'm confident in the Rams to take care of business this Sunday. So the Rams are heavy favorites going into this game, but I see right now, according to our friends at Bet Online Sportsbook, that the Rams are getting about 91% of the money on the money line right now. Obviously, they're like minus 500 favorites. Um, do you take pause at that and and possibly consider going the other way with the Falcons? Or is that more just it's too early to tell when it comes to knowing what Sharps may have their money on or what Vegas is predicting? It's too early to tell. We're sitting here. Your show is being recorded on Thursday morning, P PST, Thursday afternoon, EST. Uh, it's a great point you make. It's really about the value when it comes to a money line at minus 500 is, you know, where can you find a partner for the LA Rams? Because most bettors aren't going to lay $5 to win $1, right? You're not just going to play the Rams on their own. Um, I, I think that I look at those percentages. I do get scared if this is a easy decision and it's all public money. That scares me a little bit, right? So I, I would wait and see approach. I don't bet, Kyle, typically until the AM hours on a Sunday. Or if I see a Saturday night play – for college football that I need a dancing partner with, let's say a 10 o'clock game, BYU's minus 350 against Utah State, just throwing out a wild example. And I don't have a dancing partner for BYU. I'm not going to lean minus 350. It's too much juice. Then I may have to dive into the NFL the next day and say, okay, let's take BYU and Baltimore. Let's marry them together. Let's get that money line down at minus 150. But my advice is to always wait and see random injuries transpire weather look at chicago i mean if you took san francisco on the money line on saturday or friday shame on you right i mean that is just it's it's a it's a rookie mistake it's nonsense you really had to dive into san francisco chicago a no play for me i don't take bad teams i'm not going to take a good team with terrible weather though and put my money on that team 
But I'm staying away from the Bears in that situation, but I'm not going to play San Francisco. So my point is, wait and see approach. Let's get this. Let's just be patient. Let's get to Sunday. Let's see where these percentages are. And let's also see what the weather injury reports show. Which, by the way, for people who are thinking about what to do this week, I'm here in Northern California. Lightning storms on Sunday. Lightning storms projected for the Seahawks and 49ers game. Let me just put it out there now for people who see the Niners as minus 10 against Seattle and a bounce back game and Seattle's regression to the mean. Lightning storms on Sunday in the north or in the Northern California area. So be prepared for a similar type of possible switcheroo for the 49ers uh, in a weird weather game as well. So does the line I, I'm kind of stuck on Atlanta and, and the Rams now this week, does the line of being uh, a 13 originally 13 points in favor of Atlanta now moving down to 10? Does that move anything for you? Well, it's showing that either there are sharps or there's public money pounding on uh, the Atlanta Falcons, right? We're seeing that line drop down. And so you have to look at the percentage of money versus the percentage of bets. If there's a huge chunk of percentage of money on a team that's likely sharps, sharps will move their money because they're spending more money with their tickets. Percentage of bets typically indicate Joe Public. So if it's 72%, and the line is moving down from 13 to 10, uh, I, I like the Rams in that spot. But if the money shows 10, uh, 72% of the money is on Atlanta, that means some smart gamblers know that the Rams are not going to cover 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. It's going to be a four, six-point game. That's when you have to proceed with a little bit of caution. But if you see a high percentage on the bet, on the bet uh, ledger, that means it's likely Joe Public. That means you probably want to lay the points with the Rams. So I can't see the money right now with Bet Online, but I can see that 65% of bets are currently on Atlanta right now. Yeah, and I think what, what transpires on, on, on a lot of websites don't give you that stat in that ledger. And I'm not going to plug any websites that do, but there are out there where you can actually see where percentage of money is, let's say at a casino, whether it's MGM, Circa, they provide you this data. I mean, they tell you, like, here's what the pros are doing. Here's what the Joes are doing. And do what you want with this data because we don't care. We're going to win no matter what. So they do give you a little bit of a guide. Does that guide work all the time? No. But I do believe if you follow this guide, kind of like when you play blackjack and you don't hit on 13 when the dealer shows six, your odds are probably better to win that hand because the dealer's going to bust. So if you follow a guide like that consistently and you see that the betting percentage is at 65, as you alluded to, or over, I think the play would be the Rams. But this 65%, Kyle, on Thursday here, late morning where you are, mid-afternoon where I am, it doesn't mean anything to me on a Thursday. So going back to last week, what were some of the interesting takeaways you had from the NFL week? The Dolphins are pretty good. Uh, the Dolphins' defense is really good. Um, two is okay, but he has like he has really good weapons. Pretty scary team for the AFC East for Buffalo, but Buffalo seems to own Miami over the last three years since Josh Allen has been a part of the squad. Um, I think that I think that Washington is better than I thought, but I don't want to be a sucker and think that's the case. Because they played Jacksonville, right? But their defense at times was okay. 
the trio of wide receivers of the Big Ten between the two Buckeyes and the Nittany Lion, Samuel, Dotson, McCorn, it's pretty solid. Um, the running game with Antonio Gibson may be one of the best pass-catching running backs in the league. Carson Wentz is going to give you total crap and then also give you a lot of good stuff to look at. It's what I they're call the bad. Carson Wentz experience. Yeah, they're not bad. They're not terrible. I think the Giants are bad. I just think Tennessee, like they do and like Green Bay does, seems like every year they stink week one. Tennessee and Green Bay, they lost week one last year, so don't overreact. The problem with Tennessee is they just don't have any weapons. And Derrick Henry... His legs, you could tell. There's just no, there was one burst, just one on Sunday against a pretty bad defense. I think his biggest run was 17 yards, and I just don't trust this Titans team like I've done in the past. But good for them. They play in a bad division that did not record a win last week. Other takeaways, man. The culture, the culture, good, but they just don't know how to win. Whether it's Matt Ice or it's Carson Wentz, they just can't blow out teams. Houston is not good. They have, they really don't have weapons. They got Cookie at wide receiver. Brandon Cooks, I mean, that's really it. That's your number one guy. Every touchdown huge... scored by the Texans last week was by a player who wasn't on the team 10 days yeah. ago. It's crazy. They're not a good team. They're, they're really bad. I think Houston's much worse than Jacksonville when it comes to personnel. But yet the Colts can't win that game. They should have lost. By the way, you you should be happy if you had. I'm I'm happy. I had the Colts on the money line parlay. I didn't lose. It's a push, right? But they should have lost that game. I don't. You, if people were like, "Oh, we should have won that game for Survivor," no, you had no business winning that game. Houston dominated for three quarters and nearly a half. Indianapolis is surprising because they have a great team. Their defense is solid. They have maybe the best running back in the league. I think Michael Pittman is a top six receiver in the league. Matt Ryan, yeah, middle of the road. But I think what they're lacking is a really good wide receiver too, which they do not have. Paris Campbell, I, I just, you know, great, great receiver at Ohio State, average, average in the NFL. Tight end position, very murky. Mo Alley Cox, I think, probably got the most run for them last Sunday. So they have spots, but Indy to me is the superior team in the South. They were they were disappointing. The Bengals just were flat, right? They were flat. They're good. Like they're gonna be fine. I I, I think the don't overreact to the Bengals losing. I think they run Dallas out of the gym on Sunday. I really do. I think the Bengals are fine. Joe Burrow could not have played worse in the first half. But what you saw Burrow do in the second half. That reminded me of the Joe Burrow from, you know, week four and beyond last year where he just was on fire. Joe Burrow will be fine. The Bengals don't overreact and think Cincinnati's back to being crappy. They're pretty good. They showed a lot of guts in that fourth quarter to come back and should have won that game. Yeah, I, I think with the AFC South, I'm with you on pretty much everything that you said, which is the Texans are headed towards the number one pick in the draft and at least they have Derek Stingley who looks like he's going to be the next Jalen Ramsey in terms of just the most talented corner to enter the NFL in six years. So good. And the Colts are the best team in that division because I think contrary, uh, you know, on the other side, yes, the Titans should have beat the giants in that game, but the Titans are not good this year and the Titans are going to be 
pretty firmly out of the playoff this year. They're not the only reason they're going to be talked about is because someone has to make it from the AFC South. And if the Colts, like you said, don't run away with this, which they should, um, the Titans will be the next team that could slide in there. I, I just I, I don't know what to do with the Colts. They're the same Colts team they've been before. And like you said, they were down 17 and then defeated the tech, basically 17 point comeback against the terrible Texans and. I, I kind of with you on the status quo of it's just kind of watch and see what happens with the Colts this year. Like they're just they're not great for gambling. They're not great as a fantasy option. Even Jonathan Taylor is is going to get you a touchdown, but he was for, you know, 95 percent of people not available for you in your fantasy leagues during the season because he was the number one pick. And the whole the whole Colts season is going to be so strange to watch. And uh, going all the way back to something you said, Washington's basically even money this week against Detroit, which I, I thought is interesting given how both of those teams put up points and both of those teams couldn't really defend a lick during uh, during their games in week one. And maybe that's a broader trend for both of them. I don't know what to make of this game. I, I just stay out of the waters, right? The waters are scary. The waters are too deep. There may be sharks in the water. If you're betting Washington, Detroit, Good for you because you have a better beat on this game. Detroit's got a great offense. I mean, they showed that. Their defense is absolutely dreadful. They are at home. They've won six in a row against the Redskins football team and commanders. Uh, I would say not the commanders because they've never played the commanders. They played the Redskins and the football team. So I, I, I think this is a really difficult game to play. I mean, if you want to play this game, maybe a short one-unit play on the Detroit money line there. They are at home. They showed a lot in the second half. They've beaten the this team six times in a row over the last like you know eight or nine years. I, I just don't like this game. I, I could see Carson Wentz going off against a really bad defense, but I could also see Jarek off doing the same with with his uh, group of talented guys that he has with with Brown and with DeAndre Swift. So, man, that's a no play for me, Kyle. That's kind of one of those like, hey, let's just watch it on the red zone. Put in, you know, insert some guys on Fanduel like Swift and McLaurin. That's about it. I have a fantasy co- or I guess a gambling question that I'm seeing and I want to get your advice on it. The the Patriots Steelers over under is 40 and a half and like 70% of the bets are coming in on the over. Should I take the under on Patriots and Steelers despite the fact that it, I think it's the lowest over under of the entire weekend? It should be. Where now where where did this line open? Uh for the over under, let me see. Um Looks like it started at 43 and it's gone right. down to 40 and a half. And, yeah. Uh, again, 70% of the bets are on over. Yeah. So that's a murky bet right there. Like the, 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 the bets are, are indicating that everyone's taking the over and the lines dropping down. I, I, you know, it's a weird bet for me. You know, these teams are very capable of, 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 a, of a game that lands on just 23 points, right? A 13-10 type of game. But New England, you know, played a really good defense in Miami, right? Pittsburgh played a really good defense, in my opinion, in Cincinnati. And the Pittsburgh-Cincinnati game, I don't know if it traveled over the total, but it sure traveled over the number 40. New England, without Mac Jones, definitely like the under there. But if he plays, you have to remember that they played one of the top five defenses maybe in the NFL this year at Miami in the humidity. They were probably gassed. All those special players on the uh, you know, the wide receivers and the, and the RBs, they could have been gassed, Kyle. 
it's a weird game. Why the money? Why the why the why the point spread? Excuse me. Why the total has dropped three and a half points, and yet most players are on the over. Scary bet for me. No play, but I can't really. I can't blame anybody for wanting to take the under based on these two offenses looking very below average last week. But again, keep in mind, New England didn't move the ball well against a good defense in in the hottest conditions possible that they're going to face all season long. Proceed with caution. How about college football real quick at the end here? What did you make of the the first two weeks of the season and uh, the, the miniature blood week that we had last week? I, I tell you, you know, it's really hard to figure out these teams. Even Alabama, who I thought the Alabama-Texas game was the best thing that I saw all weekend by far. That was a very exciting game that Texas just handed to them. Christmas in September for the Alabama Crimson Tide. Texas really had a chance to kind of put this game away. So Texas is looking a little better. Of course, Texas takes yet another step back with their QB1 out for several weeks. Maybe, I don't know, he could be out for the year. I don't know the status. My, my favorite thing that happened this week was at Sark's press conference. They were like, what's the status on Quinn Ewer's injury? And he's like, well, it's not broken. <laughs> Yeah, and that's yeah, all it, he gave. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he he's he's a special talent and one of you know he's all those guys from the Texas high school. What was it the Woodlands that they're all just really good. Um, the takeaway is Texas A&M stinks. Jimbo Fisher, how many big games has Fisher won at Texas A&M and at Florida State outside of the Jameis Winston National Championship? Talk about an overrated coach, in my opinion. That award probably goes to Jimbo Fisher. I'm so happy that Appalachian State won that game because that's just a big win for a small school. Uh, Notre Dame, come on. I mean, this is getting ridiculous with their coach. I mean, that, that their offense is absolutely atrocious. And I don't know if it's he's to blame. I, I don't know if the personnel is there yet. But there's a lot of pressure on Marcus Freeman. He's 0-3 as a coach, losing the Fiesta Bowl to Oklahoma State, losing the first two games of the year. But I'm going to give him a pass, right? Because if you look at the three-game sample size, he played a he played two teams ranked in the top 10 in his first two games of his career. That's really hard. The Marshall game is really difficult to figure out how that all transpired. That's a terrible loss. So, yeah, A&M and Notre Dame, you know, just – just terrible, terrible performances. Uh, I think, you know, one thing that, that stands out uh, to me right now is Kentucky. Kentucky's really good. And they're not going to win the East just because of that team in Athens. But, man, they may be a top – they could be the number three team in the SEC. I don't know who's better than Kentucky outside of Alabama and Georgia. That says a lot, a lot about Stoops and what he's done in Lexington – because they have been so bad. Does that mean so Sugar Bowl for years. Kentucky this year? I I mean, if you're the number three team in the SEC, you're going to a game that is on par with the Sugar Bowl. Why not? I mean, who's going to beat Kentucky in the SEC East outside of UGA? Maybe Tennessee. Maybe Tennessee. It will not be Vanderbilt. It will not be South Carolina. It will not be Missouri. In the SEC West, I don't know their crossover games. I, I but believe I be they have um I believe they have Ole Miss as their crossover game. That's not that's not scary to me. Ole Miss is not very good. I, I think they're gonna be fine. I don't see Kentucky losing more than two games this year. They'll lose to UGA, but outside of uh, the Bulldogs, 
man, you're going to have to you're going to have to make a pretty compelling argument that they lose three games this season. Says a lot about Mark Stoops. You go to you go down the swamp, a little bit dicey the first half, and a total domination in the second half against a very average team. But it's just a, a game that Kentucky usually doesn't win on the road in the SEC, and they took care of business. So that was a big takeaway for me. Was UK. Uh, I, here's the full schedule now. So they play at Mississippi. They're home against Mike Leach and Mississippi State. Uh, the Louisville games at home this year, and they play at Tennessee and at Missouri. Georgia does go to Kentucky, so that'll be interesting. But obviously, Georgia will be a heavy favorite in that game. But it look it looks like the games where they might trip up are at Ole Miss, at Tennessee maybe against Louisville and then maybe at Missouri. Yeah. Well, Missouri's bad, Kyle. Like they got run out of the gym by Kansas state. I, I, I don't see them. They're going to, they're going to trip up. Like you just said, they're going to trip up all these, they're college kids. They trip up. They, they make mistakes. They're, they're, they're best five skilled players. Make a mistake, go out the night before. You don't know if they're fully hydrated. You know, these, that's the, with college football, it's always tough, right? So yeah, UK is capable of going to a uh, a one loss season if everything works out. But we know that's not going to happen. But again, fully impressed with what I've seen out of Kentucky so far. And you know, Scott Frost, you know, it's been a joke with you and I for the last two seasons on your podcast about Nebraska Week Zero. I mean, this is just an embarrassment. I mean, that I cannot believe what these fans in Lincoln have endured over the last decade. What a proud program! What an amazing place to go watch football and. I'm not a Nebraska guy or a fan, but I really hope they figure it out because I think that college football is always better with Nebraska, Miami, and Southern Cal. I've said this for years. Uh, I just think those three fan bases cover the whole United States in a really good way. And uh, it looks like Southern Cal is, is a little bit on track now with, with a legitimate coach. Miami, we'll see. They they got a chance to win in College Station this weekend, which I think is going to be a heck of a game as far as intrigue goes. But uh, good luck to Scott Frost. It will not be at Nebraska. Uh, I think he's. I think his bags are packed, and he's out of the land of Lincoln. Well, he got he got tossed already, so it's a uh, it's an interim coach basis for Nebraska at this point. And uh, I always say, whenever one of these coaching jobs opens, go call Jamie Chadwell to every power. I said it for Auburn coming up. I'm going to say it for Nebraska. Go call Jamie Chadwell at Coastal Carolina because that might be the stability that you're craving within your program. But I don't know if I'd wish Nebraska upon Jamie Chadwell. Uh, at this point, <laughs> they'll figure it out. I think Trev Alberts is going to really have to look into his Big Ten. Someone with a family tree in the Big Ten, because that's what you bought. That's what you're invested in right now. That's where you are. Nebraska hasn't had a guy come in that's used to beating Ohio State and Michigan. Well, they're not even talking about those teams. They can't even beat Illinois and Northwestern. You know, you got to figure <laughs> this out. You got to find someone with some sort of lineage of winning in the Big Ten, maybe. And I'm sure there's some assistant out there that may be a better option than Frost. Can't get worse. Uh, you mentioned USC a second ago, and I guess we'll close on this. Uh, I'm just going to put this out into the universe because we're releasing this on Friday. After everything that's happened, I think USC is ranked number six now in the country. And I'm just fully expecting a letdown at some point here for USC, but man, they've been so interesting so far because their team is like a mishmash of players that we kind of know from last year and their offenses look prolific. I'm just, I'm really interested for when they actually get a tough test. That's not 
uh, Stanford or Rice, or I think this week it's Fresno State. Although Fresno State could upset them. I'm not going to say Fresno State's like not going to put up a fight, but you know, I, I'm just interested to see what happens when they play a Pac-12 schedule. And I know the Pac-12 is not good, but those teams all cannibalize each other during the season. So I just I don't know what to make of USC. I just know they're fun and they're the one team that like hasn't messed up royally to start the season. What have you made of the the beginnings of this like weird, never before seen experiment at Southern California? And and the, l- listen, we're we don't have a test yet for USC. The the first test to me is going to be Utah. Whenever they play Utah, and I think that game is in Salt Lake. So. I, I don't think we can really measure how good USC is going to be until they play a legitimate Pac-12 team. Kyle, there really aren't many legitimate Pac-12 teams, Pac-12 teams in, 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 in this conference this year. I think it's Utah and really nobody else. Colorado is awful. UCLA does not look very good. Arizona stinks. Arizona State got blasted by the Pokes uh, down in Stillwater, Oklahoma. The, the, the Pac-12 is absolutely terrible. And so let's see if they can finally take the next step, beat Utah, get to the Pac-12 championship, win that, which they have not won. I don't think Utah has won a Pac-12 championship since it's been converted to the Pac-12. I could be wrong, but I, I think it was remember. just last year was the first time. Last year was the first time for Utah. Well, I'm sorry. I meant USC. I said oh. Utah, and I meant USC. I don't remember USC going to San Francisco, Santa Clara, and winning the Pac-12 championship, maybe I'm wrong. I feel like it's been Utah or I, UCLA representing that game. Go I ahead. know Clay Helton made a Rose Bowl, but that might have been that year that um, that you, that Washington made the college football playoff. But I know they played in a Rose Bowl one year, but I don't know if they won the, the Pac-12 championship that year. Yeah, I think that Washington may have been, and I could be off here. I feel like they played Arizona maybe or someone, you know, random like that in, in the South. Maybe it was Arizona State. Maybe it was Colorado. I don't know. I just don't remember USC uh, winning the Pac-12 championship, and maybe they were at large to get to the Rose Bowl. But, yeah, no, no, nothing impressed me so far with USC. They beat up two very very average to bad teams. Stanford's average. Rice is bad. So, um We'll see. I'd like to see them be good. I'd like to see USC back in the in the mix. In the eleven years, or sorry, in the twelve years since Pete Carroll has departed, USC has won one Pac-12 championship game. It was in 2017, apparently, with I'm guessing Sam Darnold. And yeah, it. yeah, it would have been. It probably would have been Darnold. It would have been Clay Helton. So my bad. They did win a Pac-12 championship under under Helton and. Uh, but that's not many. One in uh, in the last 13 years or so. That's pretty weak for USC. And uh, you are correct about the game being in Salt Lake. That's on October 15th. USC does get one interesting one before then, which is uh, next week on the 24th, they have a night game at Oregon State, which they'll probably win, but it'll at least be interesting. That will be interesting because um, you, that's been a house of horrors, even for Pete Carroll at times, uh, going up there and, and playing in Beaverton, Oregon. For some reason, the Oregon State Beavers have always given Southern Cal problems, whether the teams were good or not good. So that's a little bit appealing to me to see if uh, if Oregon State can get, cause some trouble for Southern Cal. But I, I think that this is a team that should be fine until they get to Salt Lake. 
All righty, Razor Rosenthal, much appreciated as always. Check out Beer Life Sports and uh, follow Razor on Twitter. There's links to all of his great work in the description of this episode. As always, thank you again for talking sports with us and uh, getting us set for the weekend that is about to come, or I guess also talking about the weekends that were. Well, always appreciate Kyle. Always want to be available for you. And I wish all of your listeners good luck with their wagering and their fantasy plays. Man, we have so much left. So much left. We're just getting started. It is the second week of September, and we have this thing going until January. We are so lucky to have this uh, platform for us to enjoy. I really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to the next chance.